Hello and welcome to Trina Community Broadcast 32. This is 2022 and it is going to be exciting. As you see already, we are a star-studded gang today. It's going to be amazing to talk about Project Tardigrade um, and not about sport drives or like little little grand animals. We'll be about talking about ETL today. <laughs> Before we go into that, um, let's see who is joining me today. Brian, of course, is always with me. Hello. Already doing uh doing the thing. So we have quite a few people here. Why don't we just uh let you uh you take it, Manfred? <laughs> yeah. Say hi Martin. Obviously, you're not the it's not the first time for you. <laughs> you're already a, a veteran co-presenter here. Uh you hi wanna guys. say yeah. anything about this show today? You excited? Yeah, I mean it's good to be here again. Uh you guys have been have been doing a great job with this. Uh, so I'm a quick intro. I'm, I'm Martin, one of the uh, creators of Preston Trino and uh, currently a CTO at Starburst. Yeah, funny thing is uh, a whole bunch of veterans from back in the day at Facebook are joining us today. We have Brian, how about you? Uh, yeah, um, so I'm, uh, uh, I recently joined Starburst. I was the PM for Preston and Spark at Facebook. Yeah, so he he's had his finger dirty and all that stuff for a long time, and you'll you'll see he has a lot of experience with the ETL sort of world, just as much as uh, Andre Sebing and Lucas as well. So, Andre, how about you? Yeah, I also recently joined Starburst. Uh, I'm coming from Facebook when I was working on improving uh, Presto capabilities to better handle long-running and resource-intensive workload. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna, looking forward by the way, to that blog post you wrote. Uh, I was going to say, yeah, we're going to link that blog post. Uh, Andre just is, is uh, landing a blog post here shortly. It's not live as of this recording or the live presentation, but uh, once it's live, it's basically going to be going out in our in our show notes. So check out the show notes uh, if you're watching this uh, in post-production or after we get this out to a video. And Lucas is joining us as well yeah. today. Long-term, long-term Presto contributor and maintainer. How's it going uh, over there? Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm currently a software engineer at Starburst, but I used to work on Presto in my previous life and through our data also, and I was also in a maintainer. And last but certainly not least, Sibing is also joining us. Hi, uh, I recently joined uh, Starburst to work on ETL stuff, and I, I was a software engineer working on Apache Spark at Facebook as well. Awesome. So, yeah, that's the star that gang today. Um, and we're going to continue the trend that we've set out in uh, 2021. Uh, as you can check on the Trino website, there's a blog post that tells us about the growth of Trino and everything. Uh, Brian did an awesome job pulling all that together. Um, very exciting what we got achieved last year. But I have a feeling it's going to be even more exciting this year. So, Let's roll right into it, Brian. What do you think? Yeah, so like you know, that's what we're we're here talking about today uh, with with talking about this uh, charter grade initiative. Um, it's something that I hinted to in that blog, and and by the way, I'll, I will uh, add that as well to the show notes um, after the show. But um, yeah, that that uh, it's it's this kind of thing that we're we're trying to kind of really get our heads around and thinking like, okay, you know, Trino's already the fastest kind of ad hoc query engine that you can get. Uh, on and and uh, it enables you to do federated queries over data lake with all sorts of other data sources, right? Um, everybody's very familiar with like the the use cases that we've we've used it for. But like when Trino and Presto was was initially created, uh, as we're going to be talking about a little bit in the 
kind of history segment today, uh, you know, it was created with ETL in mind as well. And yet we, you know, we've seen occasionally some companies adopting it as ETL, but not not as quite as proliferated as you would expect to see with a, with an engine of this caliber. So uh, we're going to kind of dive into why we kind of uh, see what we're seeing in, in, you know, different users of Trino today, why some uh, have not adopted it as ETL. And uh, this, this you know, pr initiative and project that we've built around uh, this to kind of, uh, you know, make uh, a, a much more compelling case to use Trino for uh, long running ETL systems, as well as uh, all sorts of other interesting use cases that, um, just setting uh, setting these changes to the core engine will, will enable us to do. So look forward to that. But before we hop into that, let's go right into uh, a quick announcement from uh, from Starburst real fast. I'm Colleen Tarto. I am the director of engineering on Starburst Galaxy. What is it actually offering? So, I mean, I, I think this kind of like builds on some of the open source Trino stuff, but is it doing a lot more? Uh, what what kind of pains is it solving? Could you kind of uh, uh, give us a little bit of insight on, on what actual pain this is going to be uh, uh, alleviating? Yeah, absolutely. And so to, to think about that, I always like to go back and think about what's the difference between Starburst Enterprise and Trino, right? And so I always like to think of Starburst Enterprise as the cool older sibling to Trino. It's a little bit more mature, a little cooler. It's got a, it's got a car. It's got yeah. some cool stuff going on, leather jacket, you know? Um, and Trino is awesome in its own right. Don't get me wrong, but Starburst Enterprise is just better and a bit more grown up. And specifically what that means to me is that with Enterprise, you get more, you get more functionality, faster performance, more connectors, more security, better management, better integration into the ecosystem of tools that you already use today, data governance, integration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what really speaks volumes to me is that when you use Starburst Enterprise, you get Starburst, right? You get best-in-class support from the folks who work for us, and they know Trino best because they created Trino, and they're con continuing to contribute to Trino. Um, but Starburst Galaxy takes that to a whole other level, right? So one of the pain points is installing, managing, maintaining, monitoring Starburst Enterprise. And so Starburst Galaxy alleviates all that, right? So it's um, a fully managed service. It's Starburst Enterprise as a managed service and more. And one last question. As yeah. uh going to be any free offerings coming up anytime soon? Is that on the road? Absolutely. We're building out. We've got a free trial. Um, so if you're interested, absolutely reach out to us. We are very excited about it. Um, and then we're talking about sort of a free tier. So like being able to just play around with it in your own environment and see what's what. We'll keep you all uh, up to date on when you can start to play around with Galaxy and Trino uh, for free for just a little bit and uh, get to know this incredible service called Starburst Galaxy. Thank you so much, Colleen. Thank you. Okay, so uh, Manfred, we had two releases since uh, our our last uh, thing, and I think this is going to be a lot more common, right? Like, especially now that we're yeah, doing yeah, yeah. on a monthly basis. <laughs> You'd be surprised. I'm pushing toward like me, Martin, and Dane, David, and all the others. We're trying to get to a regular schedule, and we're trying for weekly, but. <laughs> there's always these release blockers sneaking up <laughs> yeah yeah so, I, I think you know that's something else would you want to talk real fast too to like you know we we're there are a lot of like uh internal initiatives on the trino side of the house that are like really um that are really focused in on like how do we 
how do we get ourselves in a better position to uh, to do releases uh, and not not really have these blockers? Could you just real fast before we hop right into the release notes uh, talk about that just for a second, man? Yeah. So what we what we're planning to do is basically to provide more assistance to the maintainers because obviously. They are super busy just reviewing the code, writing code, and making everything happen. So, like the usual bookkeeping and assembling release notes and ticking all the boxes and that kind of stuff is is necessary. But we don't want to waste like you know like super qualified engineers time for that. So yeah. I'm trying to help out on that, and we want to help out more on that. And then there's other aspects like oh my god, it's frustrating to look at GitHub Actions when when you have to wait for hours for a build to come up because the queue is just so big, right? Like there's just so, like the project is so alive and so thriving. Yeah. So much stuff gets pumped into all these pull requests and fixes and like the infrastructure just can't hold up to some degree. So there's a lot of things that we're improving and it's amazing to see how um, we're working towards like, you know, like finer grained builds that only build what's necessary to be built and validate that, build a bit of a pipeline up just fix up our processes, be more reactive to it, you know, ping each other, help each other out. And it's, it's, it's really making a difference. So it's awesome. And, and we have a, a role uh, that we're trying to get approved for this. I'm not sure if it's approved yet, so I don't know if we can talk about it too it's, much. But It's like... essentially approved. We're, we're looking for a release manager. It's not posted yet. I'm, I'm working on that uh, with okay. the team um, coming real soon. So if you're interested in that kind of stuff, definitely reach out to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was gonna say let's let's take 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 a moment for that. If you're interested in that kind of stuff and you really want to get involved in a you know thriving open source project, uh, talk to Manfred. <laughs> yeah, you, you'd have to put up with me and Martin and all these other <laughs> other terrible people. <laughs> <laughs> terrible, ter terribly uh, charming. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, what we did get out in the last month, can you believe it? It's um, January, but we already have two releases. So 367 <laughs> hit just before uh, the end of the year. 368 hit as well. Um, and we got a whole bunch of changes again. So um, lineage tracking for with clauses and subqueries was uh, achieved in 367. And then a cool thing that happened is uh, there's an option now to hide inaccessible columns when you do a select star query. Um, it used to just quietly not work, and now um, you have the option to just hide them and the query actually returns, which uh, is a bit less confusing, right? So um, a bit more transparent. That's really good. The flush metadata cache uh, procedure, it's like a system procedure, is now also added to the Hive connector. We mm -hmm. already added it to a whole bunch of the JDBC connectors as well. So that's really good. Um, metadata performance is, is very important. Um, but now and then, like, you know, caching is not an easy project problem. And now and then you can sort of like, you know, help it along a bit if the cache gets a bit uh, of a mess. Um, you can improve performance on a decimal type. And of course, for financial transactions, that kind of stuff, this becomes in like stats and stuff. This becomes really important to get that in. Uh, the mm -hmm. Iceberg connector got access control, which was cool because it was actually uh, contributed by... Um, one of the actual users that was like, well, it was an easy change. They added that in and it works nicely. Nice. So that's cool. Our single store mem SQL connector got time type for supported in the type mapping. On the Phoenix connector, we added binary. So again, across the connectors, changes as well. That was pretty cool. Single store is the mem SQL, right? Yeah, single store okay. slash mem SQL. So there, there was a company founded around it. They renamed the open source mem SQL project to single store. And okay. we... We still call it like in the connector.name, it's still memsicle, but in the yeah. documentation, we call it single store slash memsicle sort of gotcha. thing. So, 
it, it's important to honor sort of the people that like really drive these projects, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, Confluent is very active in the Kafka ecosystem and contributes heavily, just like Starburst heavily contributes to to Trino. Um, our to Trino, obviously. And then there's lots of companies that do that, and it's 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 important to, on the one hand, honor these companies, but also honor the projects. And I think that's we're trying to do that for a single store. And that's cool. Um, a couple of other things that I noticed, and I think they are cool. Um, there was a little bit of a data loss when uh, you d did a drop schema in the Hive and uh, Iceberg connectors in potential edge cases, and that was fixed. I think that's cool. Uh, something that's uh, a cool performance um, improvement was that I'm not even sure. I think, Lukas, were you actually involved in that as well? There's a new um, like execution policy that's phased. That's called phased. Um, it used to be all at once, and now we implemented a new one called phased. Well, it was already there. We implemented a new algorithm for it, and then we set that to default because it brings pretty cool performance improvements. Well, it was actually brought by Carol. Like... Oh, okay, Carol was working on that. Yeah, I, I can describe what, what it does. So back in yeah, cool. back when we wrote uh, Presto, we had a scheduling policy that would try to schedule all the stages of a query in one shot. Uh, so that was called the all at once. It was the only one at the time. Uh, and the reasoning for that was like, well, if you want the query to finish fast, uh, then schedule everything, let it run. If something's blocked because there's no data available or you need to wait for other stages, let that be and, and they, will, they will happen when they happen. Um, then, but that has some disadvantages because it means that some so the things that can execute in parallel end up, uh, for example, doing group buys or or joins and so on and building, uh, mem uh, uh, adding data in, into memory, which which can can cause memory, memory pressure if you have a, a lot of queries and especially big queries. So when we added um, uh, later, we added another another strategy called phased in. And, and part of the, part of the goal for that was to support larger ETL workloads. Interestingly, we're going to talk more about that uh, at Facebook. And the idea with that that strategy was to schedule the phases of a of a query only when uh, they can they can start processing. Like if, if you think of it as if you take the plan and you do like a topological sorting of the of the plan and then schedule things as they go. Um, and then recently, Carl was doing some some investigation. He found a, a flaw in that in that scheme. There was a uh, um, think of it as a, a priority inversion problem, where uh, some phases were being scheduled. They were taking slots out of the, the what what workers could perform, and then they were starting other stages that could make progress. So we refined that that strategy to really. Uh, schedule only things that can can absolutely execute at any point in time, and uh, and it was just an improvement improvement to a phase scheduling, and and because it was better in general, uh, we made a default. So we should should finish much faster now. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, a lot of those performance improvements are always like amazing to see. There were lots of smaller improvements in memory mentioned query processing for Project Tardigrade, but I'm not going to dive into them because we're going to talk about that shortly. 
Um, you also mentioned um, something about you wanted to say something about decimal, Martin. What was the, did I mess yeah. something up? I wouldn't be surprised if I did. <laughs> no, no, you, you, I, I know you, know, you just glossed over the improvement. It's, it's actually a much more significant uh, a change than that. That's that's what users will see is a performance improvement. But if you are building connectors the, and you're using decimals, this is important to know that we change the internal representation of decimals. Uh, this how a decimal value, which is a uh, say a, a 128 value, 128 bit value inside the engine, is, how is it represented? It used to be represented as a as an absolute uh, as a positive number with a bit that that indicated what the sign was, and that was notoriously hard to um, process efficiently because all the CPU computations uh, operate on two component representation, which is um, which is uh, basically what how CPUs represent numbers internally. So there's always this conversion back and forth, and and all the algorithms, some uh, addition, subtraction, had to be rethought uh, to to deal with that representation that we had. So we changed that. We made it two's complement. We applied all the uh, uh, revamped all the algorithms, all the operations to to be able to operate on them. Uh, and then some of them became simpler as a result, so they became faster. And the interesting thing is, as the, the, the JVM improves, there's opportunities to uh, take turn some of those operations into native operations in, in like using native instructions. There's a, a, um, there's a, a set of uh, functions in the JVM that's called, that are called intrinsics, where when you write code using certain, certain libraries in the, J, in the JDK, the VM just emits specialized instructions in the CPU. So you can you can take advantage of features in the CPUs directly. So we hope that over time, um, that will make it easier to to improve the, the performance even further. I feel like we need to just do a whole separate episode on like all the JVM improvements that are coming with like Java 17 <laughs> in general. Yeah, I was going to mention this. There's a couple <laughs> of interesting things happening there. One yeah. of the things we found is that we we have to make sure that the various JDBC drivers are actually also supporting Java 17, because yeah. otherwise those connectors won't work. But yeah, we, we're definitely on the way. It's, it's it's very exciting, I think. And right. yeah, <laughs> a future episode about Java 17 usage, I think, is definitely in the in, in the, the cards for sure. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to also mention, Martin, that that was amazing. Like you literally had this small, modest one-liner release notes, but actually it's a massive change. Yeah. So you have to read behind the lines sometimes. It's really awesome. That's that's um, why we have the show, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so quick question though. Did that affect the SPI for connector developers? Like, do they have to change anything or is it all transparent to them? No, it did. That, that's why I mentioned that if, you are, if your connector uses decimals uh, or produces or, or, or consumes decimals, there's a new type that we use to represent decimals. Uh, okay. So you need to update your code. If you are generating decimal values, you need to encode them using two's complement now and present them to the engine using two's complement rep representation, which is generally how things are represented under the covers in storage systems anyway. And all the included connectors are obviously migrated yeah, over to the new SPI and people want to use look at an example code. They can because it's open source, right? Yeah. And it's it's kind of the inverse uh, argument to that common saying, like, if it is broke, fix it. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, very cool. Uh, thanks for thanks for bringing in the that that level of detail. It's always good to we just need to have you here in general for the for the release notes, Martin. I feel like you just have the inside scoop on a lot of these. Uh, 
Okay. So, uh, Manfred, did you want anything? Have anything else you wanted to, to sum up on the release notes before we hop um, on? Three hundred and sixty-nine is coming soon, and I think you have to have the concept of the week happening now. Concept of the week. Let's do it. Dang it! You know, I I always forget that it's now the concept of the month, and I still oh, yeah. change those videos. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay. So, uh, so we have a lot of really interesting, uh, information in the show notes. Uh, most, most of it is text-based. So we're going to be talking a lot about that in prose. Um, but, uh, you know, essentially we're, we're, we're introducing, uh, project charter rate and let me skip down real fast for those watching the video. We, we have a, a awesome, I think it's a badass little emblem, uh, around, around this uh, project. So, Tardigrades, uh, just so everybody knows like why, why we named it this, uh, are these little microscopic creatures that uh, are, are virtually indestructible. Like I think in some ways it, it is possible for them to, uh, to die over various times. But they, these things can literally uh, uh, die for like actually stop their organs from running and uh, literally go into like a frozen uh, state where they've literally like been, uh, I, I guess it's like, but I think it's called cryogenesis or something like that. It's like where, you know, you, all those like things in movies you see where people freeze themselves. But these things, these, uh, these things can literally do that uh, to themselves and practically just keep their cells alive somehow after like stopping all of their organ functions and stuff. So it's really interesting. And, and uh, we've put them in all these crazy uh, environments like on the moon and uh, we've starved them of, of any food or re resources and they just never really die. So, uh, so I, I felt like it would really made a lot of uh, sense to, uh, uh, to, you know, that we bring in a name that's, you know, something, something to this at this uh, level of resilience uh, really is fitting to the project that we're talking about today. Um, and so, uh, so these uh, little uh, tardigrades are also called water bears. Uh, and, and so, you know, we, we're, we're using them as our little mascots for this project. And obviously, you know, Commander Bun Bun has to be front and center. Uh, so I'm, 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 you know, internally naming this the Bun Bun Bear. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's our little uh, emblem behind this. And so what we're ultimately trying to talk about here, uh, we give a little context in terms of history, but, um, you know, a lot of users in the in the community space have talked about how they've really uh, struggled with you know uh, using Trino uh, for ETL, and we're going to dive into that in a little bit. I'm not going to steal anybody's thunder, but we you know to to motivate kind of why we're approaching to this project, you know we we want to talk uh, address a few things as kind of like questions. So the first question I think, and and this one I'm going to pick on uh, Brian Jan for is you know. That kind of comes down to like, why do people actually like? Why should we even be thinking about ETL for Trino uh, when you know people maybe today are are we we see it happen in the wild? We've seen it at Facebook, we've seen it at Salesforce and and DoorDash and other big companies. Uh, but you know, it, it's just by by and large, it's not the uh, most common uh, use that we see people using Trino for. It's it's uh, maybe shorter run ETL at, at, at the most, but you just don't see it quite as common. So. Um, you know, why should we think about, or why, why are we talking about this today when this is our always existed? And so, um, I'm gonna, just so we can see people a little bit better, I'm going to actually take off this. There we go. Um, and bring everybody's beautiful faces up here. And, uh, Brian, could you just tell us a little bit about like, you know, what, 
why are we, what, what is the big advantage to, to having Trino uh, run ETL when, when a lot of people are using query engines like Spark uh, to, to handle this kind of thing? And, and Jibing knows this well too, right? You've done it at Facebook. So it's, uh, what, 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 why does this matter now? Yeah. Um, so I guess like when we, uh, I think the common problem with ETL is that it's just like a, uh, it's a really, uh, it's much more long and drawn out process than it needs to be for like the data, for the data engineers who have to do ETL. And very often, like there's just like so much work overlift to do uh, for ETL yeah. that um, like a lot of like business analysts, software engineers, data scientists, they just won't bother with it. Yeah. Um, and so like the, the key problems uh, to really go through is just like, um, at least among people I talk about is uh, you have one is you have to move data around all the time mm. uh, just in order to get your ETL done. Um, there's no ability to do query federation. And that is a process that takes weeks. Um, yeah. uh, so typically you're saying like upfront before you even like are trying to at, like answer a question, you have to upfront like basically ha uh, move, move a whole bunch of data from all these different sources into the same location and there's no kind of this concept that like what Trino brings is with that ad hoc nature of, Hey, you know, we do need a little bit of context from this, this one data source, but we don't need the entire kitchen sink from, from this whole necessary thing. And we don't have to necessarily up from move everything all, all, all before we can even start asking questions. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. And like, that's a, one of the, like, really like the biggest challenges that people face. Another very common one that we hear a lot um, is like, especially uh, like data engineers, uh, we heard all the time at Facebook was, um, you know, you start off your ad hoc analytics in Trino and then you have to convert it to Spark. Yeah. And that is, uh, so that, uh, that is a process that uh, uh, takes a long time, can create data correctness issues. Yeah, because like, uh, and, you're, and you usually see that pattern because, it, you know, ad hoc analytics, having that fast query turnaround that's usually like a human in the loop, basically like figuring out what's the right query. And then, you know, okay, well, we want, we, we found the query or we found the question that we're trying to answer now, which data sets we're applying that to. Now we need to actually move that into something that can handle long running queries and, 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 uh, basically be running at scale. And that's the part, that's that transition part that you're saying is just really, uh, painstaking. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And that's also, is that also because the Spark SQL dialect is different from the Trino dialect? So there's like pitfalls, I'm guessing, that like functions are different or whatever? So dialects are just one thing, but there's a lot more than that. Like uh, like if you just Google, like convert Spark, Presto SQLs, Stack Overflow, right? Mm -hmm. um, th there's numerous issues. It's like, hey, you, like, you did some optimizations in Trino uh, that don't hold in Spark. Yeah. Um, you use a UDF in Trino that uh, doesn't exist in Spark. Mm -hmm. All right. Like all of these, or use some connector that it doesn't exist in Spark. It's just like all of these things that really have to do with like fundamentally moving the SQL between engines just creates all these like weird issues. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess like kind of just like diving a bit deeper into the uh, first point about like just uh, needing to move data around to just get the analytics started. Um, like uh, there's been, uh, like, I guess it, like there's a ton of stories, like, uh, like when I was at Facebook, oftentimes, like I would ask a data engineer to like, 
hey, can we get this dashboard up and running? Uh, like, should be a one-day job, right? Yeah. And then they, uh, like, I, I, you would drive the data engineers crazy because they would need to move their, they would need to do a bunch of, like, ETLing of the data around just to get started on the, anal on, on, on the analytics. Yeah. Um, and so it would end up taking them weeks. Um, and this is very much a common trend. Like, for a lot of companies, like, data is, like, super widely dispersed and fragmented. And so, like, for example, I'm a previous company. Uh, whenever an M&A happens, you have data, a ton of data stored in yet another location. And so you end up having like all this key information living in a bunch of different places. What's the M&A? Uh, merger and acquisition. Uh, merger ah, and okay. acquisition. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. And like, like basically you have a big company and a little company comes along and has all that stuff yeah. again, like another HR one. database, another, oh, everything, and it's like super nightmare. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. And like, like this is the status quo and like this literally drives data engineers crazy. Um, like that dashboard that you, you want, and like it takes weeks to get like stuff like data science, it gets heavily impeded and like very often people just give up. Um, actually, Andre, you have a really good story about this um, uh, back at Forsync. Oh yeah, this is, uh, this is my uh, first job. And uh, we were working on different optimizations for content delivery and prevention of service abuse. And very often we needed to get some insights from uh, different data sources. Like we had uh, operational counters stored in Redis. We had, of course, like users data stored in like many, many instances of MySQL. Uh, there's, of course, we, we've been, we, we were collecting events uh, using this like ancient technology called Flume. And sometimes to make a decision or to get some insight uh, or especially if we wanted to automate it, we very often had to get some data from all these multiple data sources, join it together, transform, and, and make a decision. And the process was like super painful. Like, you know, if you needed some data from MySQL, you had to scrape it somehow. So there was like a set of like MapReduce jobs that we used to scrape data from MySQL. Like a similar thing with Redis. There was also this like custom jobs. They were tailing uh, Flume queues for, for events. And then on top of that, there was Hive that used to like join and transform all this data to create uh, like, you know, tables that are more optimized for, for reads. And that, that was like, that took super long time from, like, you know, from, uh, from the idea to actually get an insight, uh, because very often we had to like, rebuild MapReduce jobs, recompile, redeploy, just to uh, join one more extra data source. Uh, so yeah, when, when I learn about something like Presto that can just, uh, yeah. read this data from many, many different data sources with, with a simple mean of it. Yeah. It sounds uh, like a lot of these statement. efforts really had this like intertwined, uh, requirement with, you know, updating code, updating kind of the static code. There's like this very tight coupling between the, uh, uh, the kind of language and capability of what you had to do basically to move the data uh, along with uh what you actually like the code you actually had to write to uh to 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 make that transition happen so it, it sounds like they're you know like you said if you're having to essentially do this build uh every single time you change anything about your pipelines and stuff like that like that's that's you know that who who knows when engineers have the time to actually get dive back into the code to actually solve something like that so you have to have like some level of abstraction 
from, you know, being able to make changes like that, uh, especially from, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the person who's wanting to run the analytics, who's asking for that dashboard, if you actually uh, enable them to be the ones that can actually make that change without having to actually dive into code and recompile and have a longer drawn out process, the, the, the less you can get out of people's way, I think is kind of the, the take home lesson. And, and the less you actually have to involve engineers is, is also, yeah, like the, the ideal state. Yeah. Um, and I guess like, like another, like very common challenge that we touched on just now, like, uh, like, you know, data engineers, uh, they, uh, like they, uh, uh, like they do their ad hoc analytics, uh, very much in like Trino because it's a far more interactive experience. Yeah. And so suddenly like you do your ad hoc, you keep on writing your ad hoc queries in Trino, test something small out. And you end up with 1,000, uh, like 100 to 1,009 SQL ETL job. Yeah. And uh, it and like now you need to convert it to another system like Spark SQL. Yeah. In order to turn it into an ETL job, and uh, like I've talked to like many data engineers who are just like super super paranoid, right? Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to like they need to change the SQL dialect, uh, stop using this UDF, stop using that connector. Um, something that ran like pretty fast in Trino um, now runs really slow in Spark. And when you have to go like change the SQL that you wrote, like you might be reporting a revenue metric externally incorrectly. Mm -hmm. uh, you might be like billing a user of your platform the incorrect amount. You might like be delivering the wrong content to users, right? And so like it's just much more simple to be able to just like convert that like Trino SQL dialect um just like turn that into an etl job with a simple click of a button yeah. rather than like um do this like long like highly risky process of um converting it to spark totally totally agree um, there. Cool. yeah um, um so so then you know outside of like you know so so it's hard to hard to convert uh you know when you're when we're talking about converting between systems especially at definitely you know making these large jumps uh, from from one system to the other is, is definitely something that that's difficult. But um, you know, so so that Trino essentially makes that simpler. But is that pretty much where it ends? Like you know, you just you don't want to have two systems. So why do people want Trino versus just why not be all in on you know? I, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Obviously, I kind of have a, a feeling of where, how you're going to answer this. But you know, why not go all in on Spark, say, and just keep using that, and and that's your your go to engine, right? uh why why trino um it's all about the simplicity of the data stack um like you just have to learn like one system and you can do everything you don't need to maintain multiple systems things just get more simple got it yeah yeah i think i think in particular you know it's in my in my view it's uh you know the the fact that trino was built from that that standpoint of we need to basically speed up these ETL ETL processes and on, I mean, you hear it constantly anywhere that it can, like that, that it was possible before where you could basically re like replace out uh, an older ETL job that either was being run in Hive or Spark. Like Trino is always the faster solution. The only thing that people seem to have been hung up on was, was really about, uh, you know, kind of maybe more on the level of misunderstanding how to configure 
Trino to to handle these larger jobs or uh, or maybe even getting into more like, you know, just just pure uh, anxiety around uh, having a system that has this kind of all or nothing, like it's going to either finish after 12 hours or it's going to fail. And so, uh, so, so you're saying there are problems or like, I mean, like that's, yeah. also, uh, that's great. What's the holdup? Like why, why aren't we yeah. just using Trino? Are people using Trino? Well, they certainly are. So what do we say. need to improve here then, Martin, <laughs> yeah. if people are? Uh, no, so, so like, let me, let me go back to uh, when we we're at Facebook. Um, it was interesting because we wrote three, uh, well, Presto at the time to be primarily for interactive queries. But very quickly and very early on, we added some of the features that you would normally need to be able to ETL, like inserts, create tables, being able to manage tables, and so on. Like if you if you need to write a script that deletes uh, or sorry drops tables, recreates them, or adds partitions, etc. You need to have those those capabilities. So that we had that pretty early on, um, and then we started noticing that people, even though uh, Presto was the system for interactive queries, someone had created an integration with the system that could do scheduling of queries. Uh, the, the, it was a system that that ran all the pipelines at mm -hmm. Facebook, and then they started organically migrating or authoring some of the pipelines directly on Presto. And they were ETL pipelines, so it just it, it worked for them. And it was a much better experience, as Brian was saying. It's like, well, they had to write the query once. They didn't have to translate from one system to another. The queries actually run a lot faster. So, uh, and there, so the reason I say uh, people use it and it has worked uh, is that it's, people have got, got spoiled by by some of the, um, the features of, of the um, open data stack uh, technologies over the past few years, like Hive and Spark, where you submit a query or a, a job and it, it will run and it will retry. It has mechanisms for ret retrying parts if something fails. And that um, I, people think, oh, a system that does ETL has to do that, there's a but there's a cost to that. There's a performance cost, and you have to do it very carefully to avoid that performance cost. So with Trino and with Presto, what we notice is that, well, oftentimes queries would just finish so much faster that you could even retry the whole query a few times and still be faster than the quill and query in Hive. So it was very successful for those type of workloads. Now, of course, like as you keep growing, your your um, your footprint, your uh, number of queries, you, need, you start getting into complex uh, issues with um, uh, like how you manage resources, how you how you prioritize workloads, how do you make sure that that all uses is fair, and that that's where it gets complicated. Um, and and queries can can over time you write one query and the query itself grows. It's like if you wrote it for a certain amount of data. I mean, maybe a year later, that, that same query is processing 10 times more data because your business grew, right? So there are cliffs that you have to deal with. Um, like, uh, and then there are limitations that Trino has that have been a, a problem. And this, this, these are the things that uh, we're going to talk about, uh, or Andre and, and Zeping are going to cover. So it's possible, but not ideal. And we're going to make it better. Yeah, yeah, it, it's possible. It, I mean, it's possible. It's I, I would say it's pretty ideal for some use cases, but it's limited for some others. I mean, like it's like everything. Yeah, you can you can do certain things well, but some things are not covered uh, uh, are not handled very very well. 
Mm -hmm. uh, just, just one interesting uh, stat. Like when I left Facebook in 2018, 50% of all the ETL workers at Facebook on that massive warehouse were running on Presto. And 85% of all the new workloads were being authored on Presto. So that that gives you a sense of it's not just a, a toy. It's, it's like it was a, uh, it was being used uh, in real uh, systems uh, for I mean for real production workloads. But there are some limitations, and that means that that extra 15% uh, we can't handle. There are some fi some pipelines that we just couldn't write in in, in Presto at the time because of limitations. Also, obviously. Facebook operates at a, a scale that not everyone uh, runs at. And um, isn't it true that you had dedicated ETL clusters versus the... We, we or did. Like at least yeah. optimized for the ETL workloads versus other? Yeah, we, we separated the interactive ones, which tended to be over... Uh, I mean, they, they had excess capacity so that all the queries could be get scheduled and execute quickly because people were waiting for results. And then we have the uh, the... ETL batch ETL clusters, what we call them, that they were much larger because their workload was uh, was was pretty 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 huge. And we had we had several clusters in each data center. Each cluster was, I don't know, eight hundred machines or so. Um, I mean, by the time I I left, we were processing ten thousand machines worth of CPU time every single day. So imagine having ten thousand machines running twenty four seven. And, and that's the amount of CPU that was being consumed for ETL workloads. Um, yeah, so so it's definitely like it's also very much a constraint of the current architecture that you need to really know what you're doing and you need to right. have the right resources to to do that, right? So yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, so one point is that uh, scale is also relative because if you're, I mean, you're you're Facebook, you're running thousands of machines and you have massive workloads. You might be a small smaller uh, company. You may have I know a hundred machines. Uh, but your 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 workloads may put enough pressure on those hundred machines that you have the same experience as Facebook running the same problems, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, if you, I mean, if you if we learned anything from Dane when when we were talking about some of the cluster sizing videos that he was doing, he was just like his general advice was just get more machines than than you need. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, if if that's it, if that's any indicator here, that's always. I mean. In general, that's always an, an ideal state, but not necessarily, you know, something that every person in every company can do. And when we're thinking about the large scale of, of potential users uh, that that are, you know, interested in using Trino, you know, sometimes that's the the kind of uh, unlimited resource uh, scaling uh, is that essentially they they're still pro kind of proving out Trino and and they have to deal with a much smaller, uh, essentially constrained set of uh, resources. So. Um, I'd like to pick on Lukash a little bit because uh, he kind of helped uh, work through some of the the thoughts 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 through this. And um, Lukash, could you kind of go into a little more detail in terms of like you know what what are you know based on the current architecture, kind of what are some of the these limitations that uh, that we're seeing, and and ultimately the things that we're we're kind of looking at to uh, to address with Project Tardigrade. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so with current architecture, like uh, in Trino, we are uh, scheduling like all of the tasks or most of the tasks for the query uh, at the same time, and we are basically streaming uh, the data from the data sources to the uh, final task, which uh, produces output uh, results for, for for the query to the user. Mm. 
and uh, it's done as in a like without any checkpointing and uh, there is virtually no state being held like an explicit state but only a volatile state within the operators which are running in the in the tasks and it definitely has lots of advantages like martin noted before and it was noted many times before uh, already like uh, mostly performance wise mm-hmm. so uh, very high throughput and uh, low latency but it implies so uh, some limitations uh, which can be lifted but 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 uh, it requires a uh, work which we're gonna do here so uh, one thing which which is kind of obvious we are to- we're talking here about is like this uh, the fact uh, we are not having any checkpointing on state, this allows us for doing like a granular failure recovery, which as Martin already mentioned, might not be a problem for many cases where queries are not very long and the clusters are not very big, but for cases when we are growing growing the the, 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 the use of the, of the cluster and the, the, the clusters are growing, the probability of a single node failing through the query lifetime is is growing uh, like yeah uh, and uh, at some point it may appear that even retrying the whole query many times will result in a failure always specifically if you're using like cloud yeah. providers which which uh, uh, does not give you a very high uh, uh, basically there's a chance that that, that, that the, the machines will, will, will go away for example, the spot machines in, in EC2. So, so that that's one issue which which we which we want to tackle. So the other limitation which you may think of is about the uh, memory consumption, resource allocation, basically. So we are mostly allocating tasks for the query execution statically right now, and even if we learn during the query execution that uh, one of the tasks needs more memory that is available and that memory is uh, being used by the other task running on the same node, well, there is not much we can do right now. There is no possibility to move tasks around and free some space for the for the, for the the problematic task to execute if there is data skew. So, yeah, uh, that's... Uh, so this would actually happen like some, something that we're looking to do during like runtime then. This would be like a change uh, while while the query is actually running, trying to basically. Yeah, with, with the granular task recovery, you can think of, for example, oh, this this task requires lots of memory, and there are some other tasks running here. So let's maybe kill those other tasks and reschedule them to the to some other nodes in the cluster. But currently, killing those other tasks would result in the whole many whole query being killed. So so if the query is long, that's not something you want to do. But yeah, so it's your, your you have your hands tied basically. Mm, nice, uh, very nice. So, yeah, and the, the last time, which is kind of similar to this one, is uh, also comes from the fact that many things uh, for the query execution are being uh, decided upon before the query actually starts executing during the planning phase. So, so the task placement is one thing, but there are there are other things like the most obviously the the plan of the query itself or uh, so if and th- this is being based on the very non-complete information like we are basing this uh, uh, decisions on the at best the statistics for the data if we have those but there are cases when we don't have even those so then this is like 
kind of guessing, kind of static configuration of the cluster itself. So uh, when the query starts executing, we may learn that decision we already made are kind of maybe not optimal ones. So we see the distribution of the data and we see, oh, actually we planned this join incorrectly. Maybe we should use another algorithm or maybe switch the probe side and build side, but we can't do much here. There, there are some mechanics which allows us for the runtime optimizations like dynamic filtering, for example, but there are very specific uh, cases. We can't do a more general replanning and being able to kill stuff around and not kill the whole query will allow us to to make it better, I think, yeah. Do, do we think there, you know, over time, there might be more reliance on, you know, the essentially the ad hoc query planning or, or adaptive query planning, and that will actually tr like uh, trump or, or be more important than the initial query planning. Like uh, instead of putting so much heavy weight on trying to get it right in the earlier phases, you're you're actually putting... it's fur further down down the line. But I think that ultimately, yes, the, the, there are there's there's lots of opportunity to make the overall query execution speed much faster if we can do adaptive changes while while the while the query is already running and to see more yeah, information that yeah right i would say absolutely that's that has always been the the goal in in impression trainers too like there's only so much you can do up front yeah uh, i mean statistics are generally inaccurate they are incomplete um, with, with a complex query, anything you can infer from the statistics will qu very quickly diverge. So you won't be able to make good decisions for, uh, I mean, the, the further down the, uh, the execution pipeline of a, of a query uh, goes. So being able to adapt, and, 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 and Presto and Trino have always been able to do some kind of adaptation. For example, I mean, the, the simplest one is if you're running a, a, a scan-heavy query and you I just say you're you're using all the worker nodes at 100%, and you still have splits queued up to to process. If you have a bunch of machines, the engine will just take care of take advantage of them, and it will mm -hmm. it will paralyze even further. Um, it's just when yeah. you're trying to go down, <laughs> this is the problem right now. Is like kind of well, that, that, that's one problem. There are some parts that you cannot move around. You cannot change the as, as Lucas was saying. You cannot move tasks if you decide if you committed to using a certain machine. You can't. Um, move things around to make room for something. Uh, if you if you make made a mistake in the choice of join type, you cannot adapt to that. If you chose the order of the joins wrong, you can't adapt to that. And all those things are things that eventually we'll, we should be able to deal with. Uh, I mean, make the system more and more adaptive based on on having the engine having the capability to uh, restart and 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 continue from where it left off. One of the things that you, you could you can also imagine doing is you execute a, a query in 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 chunks and then you learn from every every execution every sub query that you execute and then you can observe what happened with uh, the data the data you produce and then re-optimize the remaining part of the query based on what you learned. So think of it as like like a dynamic filter on steroids, you know, in a way. Yeah, is is there? I mean. Do we, uh, and maybe this is a question kind of for, for Jibing, but like, because uh, I know you know the Spark uh, engine a little bit more. I imagine if anybody's doing it at Spark. So like, is, is there any of this already in like in engines like Spark that kind of do this uh, adaptive planning yet? Or, or has this already, is this pretty commonplace anywhere else? 
Uh, yeah, so uh, adaptive, ad adaptive and runtime, uh, adaptive career planning and runtime optimization is one of the most important features in Spark 3.0. Okay. Got it. Yeah, it was just, and and so and I'm and I'm guessing and three. Do you know when exactly the three point come out? So I'm just kind of curious how long this 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 kind of thing been around. It's pretty neat. Uh, probably last year. Uh, last year in the middle of last year. I don't remember exactly. Very cool. No, it's it's really really interesting, and uh, I feel like I've I've heard of uh, like RDBMS like kind of databases do this before uh as as already as like some some uh, uh type of planning thing but i just it never occurred to me in thinking like uh through through this for uh for big data systems until like uh we we're talking about this project anyways so what why don't we uh andre why don't, why don't you um kind of let's shift over to talking about how we're actually addressing um a lot of these uh these kind of you know where we're currently at with Trino, and I know we've kind of touched on a little bit already some of the uh, uh, things that we're introducing with uh, Project Tardigrade. Uh, but but let's kind of go into a little more about like how how that's actually implement how we're looking to implement it um, and uh, and trying to you know what 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 kind of um, uh, like uh, particular issues that it resolves today and this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah sure. Uh, so basically, what we are trying to do. So in a nutshell, we are trying to break this uh, all or nothing uh, execution barrier that uh, Lukash uh, just, just discussed, because it imposes too many restrictions. So uh, basically, once query is submitted, planned, planned and running, there is not a lot of things you can do. So mm. in many cases, basically, what you can do is either to let it run as it is, or, or to kill it. Uh, you, you, you cannot change plan, uh, you cannot uh, slow it down if needed, you can uh, free some resources. Uh, so uh, what we want to do, we want to break this barrier and make uh, the execution to be more iterative. Uh, so we're planning to do this by introducing an intermediate buffering layer between stages. So tasks are no longer uh, strongly connected to each other and that would allow us to be able to execute tasks independently and iteratively and that is needed to solve uh, like the issues that we identified uh, that are kind of making people reluctant from using the engine for for their uh, ETL nice. so for example one issue uh, that we hear about uh, a lot is that the engine uh, does not sh really shine at handling high memory queries. Like for example, if like most of your workload is actually small, but then you have like one or two queries that actually require a lot of memory, like for example, maybe some large uh, aggregation or maybe some very large join uh, to do some the duplication or testing thing. Uh, you have to scale your cluster up just to support this like couple of queries uh, to be able to run them. And that was identified like this is not very cost efficient. Uh, so with this intermediate buffering layer, what we can do, we can write this intermediate data into a buffer, then process it more iteratively, uh, effectively decreasing the memory pressure and allowing to process queries 
that would that require more memory uh, that is available currently in the cluster. Uh, uh, there was also uh, complaints about like uh, the resource management. So as I said, it's basically once query is running, there is not a lot you can do, but to either let it run or, or to kill it. And so the users have to be very careful with like what workload do they submit to the cluster? Because if they oversubmit, the engine has to kill something. Uh, if suddenly queries start using more memory than, than is available in a cluster. And this actually, like being able to predict the resource utilization, it's, it's a very complex problem. And very often uh, these predictions are not accurate and often they're implemented by maintaining history of like the previous runs uh, and so on. While uh, with this, we kind of want to provide more of an experience where you have an engine, you submit a query, and the engine knows what to do. Uh, this also uh, uh, quickly touched upon uh, the adaptive replanning of the query. So when, uh, again, when all tasks are interconnected, it's very difficult to change a plan as we go. And very often, it is, uh, it is needed. Like for example, if uh, there is like a large multi-stage query that is pretty common for ETL jobs, uh, we the engine may not be able to correctly identify data patterns and uh, compute the statistics to to create an optimal plan upfront, because sometimes we just it, it's like super difficult to predict what is going to be the join ratio uh, of uh, match ratio of, of a specific join or uh, like how much data this filter is going to filter, especially if the filters like, I don't know, re rejects, right? So very often uh, with all these complex queries, the cost-based optimizer may come up with a, with a suboptimal plan and being able to adjust the plan as we go, as we learn more about the nature of data and query, it's super important, especially for these queries, uh, for, for, for the ETL queries that very often are being written once and then they run for like months and years. Uh, so, so basically kind of, uh, we're, we're not just talking then about, you know, we, we've, we mentioned a couple of the issues with the architecture saying that, you know, not being, having this uh, capability to shift tasks around and things like that has been another blocker. And by solving the problem of, you know, or essentially bringing in fault tolerance uh, and, and bringing in essentially these, uh, uh, like kind of memory spools, right? Uh, that we can essentially write intermediate data to. We also enable ourselves to solve the other problems of being able to sh to, to do the that adaptive planning. So, you know, one use case is is definitely if just you know you, you one of your uh, machines topple over, or you literally just have like uh, out of memory in one of the uh, task or JVM or something like that, then you are uh, you're you know. The first problem we're solving for is that fault tolerance by by in introducing these. But you're you're saying like this this actually just enables a much broader array of uh, it solves a much broader array of problems than just simply okay here we have fault tolerance now like it's good for ETL. We we can actually do a lot more with this now that we can actually kill a task and not have to be uh, getting the uh, kind of 
Uh, and you don't have to kill a query, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to kill an entire query just to make room for moving tasks around. Uh, yeah, and like for failure recovery, I think this is just in one aspect of, of what we are doing, right? And that, that's what I wanted to talk uh, at the end. It's, it's basically, it's kind of one of these last but not least things. Uh, so yeah, of course, if we have this uh, buffering layer in between, we can provide fine-grained failure recovery capabilities. So basically, if we lose a null, if a task dies or if a task runs out of memory or whatnot, we don't have to... Uh, we don't have to kill a query. We don't have to lose all the progress we've made, the query uh, has made so far. We can simply restart that single task. That's awesome. <laughs> that also opens like a lot of interesting opportunities of maybe even potentially using some uh, non-homogeneous hardware. So basically, if we see that uh, there is a task that is like memory heavy, maybe we can try to run it on like nodes that are memory optimized. Versus like if there is a task that actually uses all very little memory, right? Maybe we can use some compute optimized nodes. And again, we, we can all we can discover all of this in runtime. We don't have to know this in advance. Cool. We I have a question uh, about the, yeah. the replicated. Oh. Go um, ahead, Manfred. <laughs> just a quick question about the like where you have in the diagram you have replicated RAM, SSD, spinning disk. Um and you have to coordinate above. Are you saying that this is like a, a separate infrastructure in the cluster that's uh, like that uh, is shared across between all the workers, or, or is it just sort of like a virtual backbone where the system knows and can exchange data between the workers? Like, say, if, say a worker completely falls over, then is that RAM then is basically gone, right? So. Is that a separate I, system? Does it affect how you configure the, and, and change the like uh, the cluster and what you have to run? So this From is my... still something. Yeah. No. Okay, Andrew. Yeah, this is still something we are trying to. We, we are thinking and prototyping and discussing how exactly does it, how how physically is it going to look like. But from the point of view of engine, it is technically just a buffer, right? So I write the data somewhere so I can read it then. Yeah. From, from, and from I think there's a there's a uh, an extra question that we just got from one of our uh, listeners as well. It's like it's saying this looks very similar to the Shuffle service in Spark. So, uh, just wondering uh, where all of this intermediate data is going to be basically stored uh, and metadata of the intermediate data as well. So maybe we can also yeah answer both both Manfred's question and um, and and Kethel's question. Well, the from my so from an abstraction perspective. Uh, the engine just, as Andrew was saying, interacts with a buffer. There's a, we're actually introducing an API that could can be implemented via plugins that will allow anyone to to come up with their own implementation of that buffer. And that buffer has to have certain characteristics. Like ideally, like if if workers die, the buffer doesn't lose data because otherwise you have to kill your queries, uh, which implies that uh, you you want that data to exist. Uh, externally to, to the Trino cluster, potentially in memory, potentially in a replicated memory, in SSDs, uh, mm -hmm. in spinning disk or in object store, etc. So uh, what we implement there, that's, that's, that's going to be uh, subject to iteration and evolution. Um, the, the, the one we're working on right now is, is, is one based on just object store, uh, in, like S3 or GCS or, or something like that. 
Um, and they, they, there's no metadata per se. I mean, they, this is it's just a uh, the buffer is, is organized, and maybe Andrew can go into into more details. But the buffer is organized into uh, partitions and uh, and attempts, and they are associated with tasks, and that's all encoded in the data structure that get exchanged from from worker from the coordinator to the workers. Uh, the only thing that external system needs to store is the data. And then the the, the the Trino cluster manages the life cycle of those of those buffers. Okay, but you're going down the route of basically defining an an API slash it's going to be become part of the SPI, I'm guessing, and Correct. then therefore you can implement different plugins that are the provider of that yeah. backend. Yeah, yeah, because we we think that. Um, for example, in, in, there will be one that comes out of the box, will, which will support S3 and, and Google Cloud Storage, Azure Storage, as as a way to as a place to stage these uh, this data. But we expect, I know, companies may have dedicated systems for that. Like, for example, if um, if Netflix decides to uh, adopt this, they may have systems for doing distributed buffering of data that they may be using for other for other engines and they may want to ad adapt that API to that system. So this gives them a, 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 like an escape hatch in, in, in a way. And anyone that wants to do that, they can do that. Eventually, I, I think the implementation will evolve and we'll have something more sophisticated that everyone can use and can take advantage of uh, in the same way like a company like Netflix might. Hmm. Right, cool. So yeah, didn't mean to interrupt you there, Andrea. I just think there was yeah, I, I, we're we're uh, getting there's there's also a little bit of a, a discussion in terms of how we'll, that Jibing will be covering here in a second, talking about some bu buffering too, and like how we're kind of thinking about implementation details there. But but let's take a step back now. Uh, so for the time being of the like uh, you know we're, we're we're looking at this as kind of like a, an abstracted service that that handles this this memory school, and so um, so. You know, thinking through still what that gives us so far, we've talked about, you know, fault tolerance. And then we've also talked about um, uh, the ability to uh, have adaptive planning. And then uh, we kind of interrupted you there, Andre, about some of the other benefits that, that can come from a service like this. Uh, so, sorry. So, yeah, uh, I, was, I was talking about uh, failure, failure recovery. I think that was kind of like the last thing. So, uh, that was uh, another kind of point of why uh, people are reluctant of using Trina for their ETL is basically, okay, there is no failure recovery. And as Martin mentioned, like in many cases, you actually don't need failure recovery, right? But this this is again, uh, like the users are spoiled by, by what Hive and Spark can do. Uh, and when they hear, uh, when, when people hear ETL, they kind of implicitly think, okay, I probably need something that can, can tolerate failure. Uh, so basically, as yes, this is uh, this approach provides us with failure recovery capabilities, so we would be able to, to tolerate uh, single task failures, and also it opens us opportunity for using much uh, cheaper spot instances for for the ETL workload, because with uh, with the nodes now being allowed to fail, we no longer need to have as reliable compute, right? So you can use spot instances that are much cheaper. Mm. And if we lose a node, then fine, we can just recover from it. Uh, 
Does it also give you kind of a, like, if you are running on resource constrained kind of uh, like, you know, so you're running on spot instances, but like, you're also just trying to run as minimal as possible. Uh, this, this framework will basically allow you to be a lot more graceful in allowing you to kind of uh, fail uh, or, or essentially, you know, uh, not have those resources right up front and then, you know, uh, not immediately pay those penalties but then grow your cluster as, as you're seeing these more and more tasks start to fail uh, and, and, you know, things start to slow down. You can then grow to whatever you need to, to be. It's a lot more, it's a lot more gr uh, graceful and generous in terms of uh, allowing you to, um, you know, kind of operate at that, at that level. If, if that's how your company operates, that's, that's how they operate. Right. And so you can at least have that ability to grow uh, alongside the, uh, the resource, uh, uh, the resources that you're given, essentially. Yeah, it kind of changes the approach because basically when, when you're submitting your query with a current architecture, you kind of need to know upfront what resources you need to run this query, right? But with this approach, it kind of switches it uh, in, a, in a different direction. So if you submit a query and the engine will be smart enough to figure out how much resources do you need. And if you, if you need more resources than is available, then it can, of course, ask for more resources. It can add more nodes to the cluster and so on. Awesome. Uh, Ultimately, of, it'll uh, make it real fast. Uh, so I wanted to quickly say hi to Anjali. Uh, nice to see you. And uh, uh, yeah, looks like uh, she's, she uh, is totally on board with the uh, plug pluggability of the buffering system. So uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk and see if uh, we can uh, think of some cool stuff to do with uh, Netflix and see what they do with it. Maybe we'll, we'll pull them on the show later <laughs> on, on a future show <laughs> to talk about what, uh, how they, what they've implemented. Sorry, go ahead, one, Manfred. Uh, sorry, uh, let me uh, let me add uh, to one, one thing that um, Andrew was saying. Is like, uh, it 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 also changes the. I mean, there's a one of the biggest big limitations that exists in Trino today is that you have what we call a a cliff. It's like the call it memory cliff or execution cliff. What happens is you run queries and the queries run until they stop working because your data uh, grew or, or or what the query was doing doesn't grow linearly with the amount of data in terms of memory required and so on. So you need to you need to know in advance what you're gonna need or you need to be continuously watching. Um, the experience is pretty horrible because your queries run are failing and you have to scramble to fix something to add capacity to uh, change your query to break up your query into smaller queries, and that's that's a that's not a very good experience for users. So what this allows users to do is, or what allows the system to do is do a uh, more graceful trade-off. Uh, you can have speed, or you can have um, bigger queries and and everything in between. So as your queries grow, they will slow down, and and then you have flexibility to address that in a in a more leisurely uh, manner. I, I, unless of course you care about the the you you have st strong requirements on the latency of those queries, in which case you will have to be watching and and, and seeing how the execution uh, yeah. performs over time. I, I see this being a very good like adoption capability here too. Like anybody who's kind of dipping their toe in in the Trino waters and trying to figure out, you know, what's the right cluster size and uh, and and trying to understand, you know, how how do we actually, you know, pull this in? I 
cluster sizing has always been a scary topic, I think, in Trino land because of this and, and because when people are new and they're, they are trying to figure out what's the right way to configure our cluster, this gives them kind of an option of a, a little security blanket while they're figuring out and learning this, the system, actually. And so I think this is a, a really interesting, uh, uh, has a lot of interesting opportunities to uh, position us uh, to, to basically allow us to, you know, bring in these tutorials and things and saying, okay, while you're figuring out your cluster size, like here's a, here's a good kind of approach uh, so that you, you can get people onboarded and trusting the system so that their queries aren't failing left and right if you're resource constrained. And then here's what you need to look out for, like, set up an event listener that that checks for tasks that are constantly failing and then if you if you're starting to see that grow you know that should be like a metric saying hey grow your query now show this to your boss and get some money for for some for some more uh compute you know uh, i think like this this makes the adoption phase much uh much more uh uh on the onboarding phase much better so uh, got a quick question from Parth real fast. Are buffers all or nothing per query, or will we allow controls so users can choose which uh, choose which or what type of stages use buffers? Stages can avoid that penalty. So I think we're talking about granularity. What what granularity uh, are we able to work at, Andre? So for now, uh, I think we are thinking about just buffering every stage. But we are trying to design it in a way so in the future we can we can make these decisions uh, more more optimally. So maybe sometimes we need this buffering, sometimes we don't. Uh, also, the, another approach would be uh, to just make this buffering layer uh, to be super super cheap, right? Like for example, if we if we never touch disk, if we never touch any kind of solid storages, and we keep everything in memory, then it's technically should be as efficient as the streaming exchange today. Uh, well, we're also thinking we're also thinking about approaches where we we use them speculatively. For example, uh, we may start using the buffer in case something fails, but as soon as we have a degree of confidence that that things are not going to fail which we we stop uh, we bypass them or things like that where the the choice of using the buffer is adaptive based on runtime conditions or if we decide that things are cheap to recompute uh we may we may not i mean cheap to recompute at a whole stage level we may not use buffers those buffers in between and then just if something fails reschedule the whole stage hmm. uh, Speaking of kind of, uh, since people, a lot of people are really interested in how this buffer is going to work. So uh, I'd like to take a quick uh, second to just kind of uh, jump into uh, some of the details uh, around that. And Jibing, could you kind of tell us a little bit about, and again, this is all like, so just so everybody knows, like this is not uh, implemented. We're, 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 for the first time, we're trying to kind of uh, talk about the design of these uh, these elements, kind of in public, some things have are, are kind of this is kind of our thoughts and direction that the team this you know team here are, is going with with thinking through Project Tardigrade. But we want to you know also kind of open this up and uh, to the broader community and then understand these things. So I just I want to make a quick mention that like a lot of this stuff is still like open in the air and we're really wanting to hear people's uh, thoughts and and uh, qu and questions and 
you know, input on, on how, how this is all being done. And, uh, we, uh, I'll mention this again later at the end of the show, but we opened up a, a, a Slack channel called project dash tardigrade. Uh, so if you are really interested in following up on this, do, do, uh, you know, join there so that we can have some conversations around this, but, uh, tell us Jiving, like, uh, where we're kind of, uh, th- what we're thinking about in, in terms of uh, how to implement some of the finer details about like how we, um, you know, are, are splitting uh, different files that we're reading across different tables into uh, the tasks and, and how we're uh, approaching this. And this might be kind of uh, in contrast to, you know, other query engines and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, Martin already covered a lot of details here. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I will be quick. So to uh, enable fault tolerance and all the possibilities mentioned above, uh, we need to have some distributed buffering to store our intermediate data. Uh, So one straightforward approach mentioned that we are actively working on is to use AWS F3 as intermediate storage. So this allows us to scale without maintaining another service. Uh, So, this will be part of the open source and uh, uh, it's more intended like a proof of concept, but it should also be very good for small clusters like 10 to 20 nodes. Uh, it can be slow uh, due to the fact that, uh, so as showing the diagram, every upstream task will write to the files corresponding to the partitions of the downstream tasks and the downstream tasks will consume from uh, the partition files written by the upstream tasks. So this has a problem is uh, the number of files will grow quadratically with the number of partitions and this uh, brings us the small IO problem. So this will not support high cardinality exchanges um yeah so to improve from this uh we can extend to distributed memory with spinning uh as a buffer service so this will require a long-running managed service but this will improve performance uh so this part will have a lot of innovation space uh depending on design like we can use right ahead buffers to uh, merge the output data belonging to the same partition. And uh, we can, yeah, depending on one or whether we want to uh, persist it to some persistent storage, uh, we can either serve the data from memory or we can provide sequential disk IO to downstream tasks. Yeah, so that's pretty much. Cool. Okay. Um, so I I hope that that kind of gave everybody a bit of an idea of of where what Project Tardigrade is. Uh, you know the kind of problems we're addressing in the in the engine. But really, I uh, Jibing, let's let's go ahead and do. Uh, we're going to go ahead and run straight to the uh, demo of the week uh, and have you uh, uh, quickly show us uh, a little bit about you know what what this actually looks like in in action. So. Uh, without further ado, to the demo of the week. So this is a Trino cluster with four workers deployed on AWS. And now we want to run TPCH Q2 with a scale factor of 10. 
So the, the binary we deployed contains the features like task library try and exchange spooling on F3. And this gives us fault tolerance. Now, let me kill one of the workers. And uh, the query does not fail. And we should be able to see the number of workers going down to three. Okay, now the number of workers is three right now. If we look at the tasks, wait, let me refresh. Okay, so you can see there's one task failed. So this is partition four of stage four. And there will be another attempt. Okay, so uh, this, the, this is the retry attempt, which successfully finished. And now when you look back to the query, the query already succeeded. So this is a demo of fault tolerance of project TardiGrid. Awesome. So, uh, so basically, uh, you know, in a nutshell, if you feel ever feel the need to uh, just throw one of your EC2 uh, instances that are just not complying, you can go ahead and do that <laughs> if you get uh, angry enough or if you literally have a warehouse that you're running this on and just want to kick something over. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so uh, basically, uh, let's see, we got a, one quick, well, uh, Follow-up from Parth, uh, he, he was basically trying to ask, uh, will we have speculative execution? And so I believe the answer is yes, uh, based on what Martin said. And then we also got a, a comment of, uh, I'd like to understand um, understand this on federated query. Jake, if you, if we, um, can anybody can parse the question there? I'm, I'm actually not sure if I understand the question. If uh, so feel, feel free, Shake, to kind of, if you could elaborate on what your question is there, we can, we can try to get it answered. Um, while we wait for that, though, um, the, uh, we have a, a PR of the month uh, that I wanted to cover. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead uh, to the PR of the month. Even though it still says PR of the week, I gotta get those fixed. <laughs> I, the, the the ongoing question, I, we should start taking bets about how long it'll take me to actually fix those videos. Okay, that's a so, good. <laughs> um, so this this month's uh, PR of the month, we we pulled from release uh, three sixty seven. Uh, it was actually the um, uh, ca capturing these column level dependencies for CTEs and subqueries. Um, this was uh, actually based on the um, this issue, uh, there it is, an issue there. This is an issue that was actually submitted by uh, Lyft data engineer. Uh, and basically they they realized like there was uh, some Trino lineage, uh, when they were tracking Trino lineage of, of a particular query, uh, it was not showcasing co uh, columns that were um, happening when they were doing um, a, a join when uh, transformations used. So. Um, basically, uh, Praveen, one of the uh, um, engineers at Starburst actually uh, jumped on this one and realized that it had to do with uh, um, whenever a query, an internal query would uh, result in an alias relation, any column that came from that alias relation um, uh, would, would ultimately not show up in these. And so just a quick small bug fix, but 
the the thing I like to point out here was the collaboration that after uh, from Lyft's side, they immediately, so we, we had about like, I think a two day turnaround for the PR and then they they immediately started testing it because I think this affected uh, a couple of their queries that they had just deployed. So um, so they they turned around and basically started uh, uh, giving us the test right away. So I always like pulling out these PRs where it's like a, a quick turnaround and then community collaboration on on making sure that it's tested and actually the uh, the bug is fixed. So uh, so definitely check that out if you're kind of intrigued by. Uh, uh, those internal like uh, uh, types and figuring out how those can actually affect subquery things can kind of affect uh, the the internal Trino type and that that can actually change uh, some of the outcomes um, on, on the upper level Trino. It was a very rare issue, but uh, it seems like uh, there was a particular pattern of query that that we saw on uh, on the Lyft team uh, where they saw this uh, more frequently. So uh, so thank you both for the fix. Um, Finally, to, to summarize this uh, episode, let's go to the uh, question of the month, even though. This month's question of the month uh, is a nice sequel one. Uh, it was just asked on uh, Stack Overflow a couple, a uh, couple, like about a week ago. Uh, and basically just uh, one of those, you know, having trouble casting JSON to Varchar with Trino. Um, I, I, you know, sometimes I, I try to get the more tougher questions on this one, but I think that, you know, really uh, these questions are far more frequent in terms of the types of, uh, you know, like uh, questions that I think we should be even covering because a lot of people that are new to it don't know about a lot of these like JSON uh, uh, functions that exist um, and, and how we can actually dive into JSON. So I think we actually need a lot more content around, uh, you know, a lot more uh, videos and, and uh, uh, tutorials on, on these uh, JSON features. But uh, the documentation does do a fantastic job and has a lot of uh, really good examples to get you started. Um, but essentially, to, to answer the question, um, we had a great uh, 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 response from Guru, Guru Strawn. Um, and so uh, basically showed the, the usage of JSON parse uh, to go from an object string to JSON and then vice versa, the JSON format to actually uh, take the JSON object and then put that to uh, a, a string as well. So, um, so this was the output and uh, as simple as that, it's, uh, you know, just really using, using these functions. And so in, in other query engines, you know, we were just talking about this with, with Spark for, to uh, Trino and trying to do conversions between those two. You know, uh, all query engines have kind of their own way of of handling things like JSON. And so, uh, when you're new to it, it's it's uh, and you don't know that these these functions exist. Uh, it's it's something that uh, you know we we should do a um, I I will say we. I should do a better job at talking about these things more often. So no, there's, uh, so, there's we. It's not just you, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So um, so great. Uh, well, uh, in summary, uh, I wanted to just thank the uh, the what I like to call the project charter grade engineers for uh, uh, for joining us today. Um, so thanks, Andre, Brian, Jibing, Martin, uh, and as well as Lukash. He had to hop off uh, a little while back. Uh, thanks for joining us and kind of explaining this. Uh, this is some super exciting stuff. Uh, we we highly you know, like we we we're having this episode today to kind of bring the latest cutting edge, what we're thinking about, what we're talking about, 
what what problems we're solving with Tardigrade to the community so that we can bring this into a much broader discussion around this project. So um, if you uh, want to get updates uh, and, um, you know, uh, Brian has raised his hand, Brian Z, I should say, not, not me, Brian. Uh, I'm not talking about myself <laughs> in the third person. <laughs> um, so Brian Z has, has uh, graciously offered to, you know, basically try to, uh, you know, occasionally take some notes uh, here and there and and keep the community, you know, as, as informed as possible uh, about updates uh, uh, going on in this project. Um, and so, so he'll be, you know, communicating there as well as all the rest of the engineers and community members working on this project. Uh, you know, uh, I think it's, we, we, we probably have a lot more discussions and we'll have a lot more questions uh, for people that aren't watching this live. Um, you know, hop in on that channel. It's project-tardigrade on the Trino Slack channel. And um, and basically just, um, you know, let us know your questions, uh, input in terms of, you know, implementation details that you think would be useful. Um, and, uh, you know, your maybe even suggestions on what would make a good uh, buffer layer, things like that. So want to hear it all. Um, before we hop off, uh, any any of the project charter grade engineers, do you any of you want to summarize or say anything before we you all sign off? Um, yeah, so uh, so like stay tuned. Um, follow the project charter grade channel where we'll aim to uh, give uh, biweekly updates, um, just whenever any key thing lands, and also. Uh, uh, once uh once the initial version of project project tardigrade fully lands in the february march time frame uh we'll also be making a, a post in the trino blog so stay tuned there as well and uh from our side just like super excited to bring to you like super fast um like federated uh etl through uh, through trino itself to just make your life a lot more simple awesome all right well, cool. Uh, Manfred, anything before we, we hop off? No, uh, just thanks again for everyone for joining us. I think it's awesome to see this kind of movement. I'm looking forward to it being easier to deploy the clusters and then you know, scale them up and down and not have to worry if, if, if everything like if just everything dies just because of one node or worker goes offline. I think it's going to be an amazing change. Yeah. Um, wanted to just also mention that some of those changes obviously are already in the releases, but it's all kind of experimental. If you want to sort of like play around and get your hands real dirty, please do jump into the Project Articulate, um, uh channel and uh, work with us there. Uh, we will follow up with more documentation, but it is literally uh, like bleeding edge, pretty experimental <laughs> bleeding edge. So yeah. <laughs> the more the more we can get people to try it out, the better. Yeah, that's why it's shipping. So some of these properties exist, and you'll see them in the release notes. Uh, don't do this in production, but please do play with it and let us know what you're finding. That'll be awesome. Awesome. Well, with that, uh, you know, look forward. We'll also be, you know, probably bringing back another, you know, Trina Community Broadcast episode as well later down the road. Uh, ideally, at that point, you know, hopefully having uh, somebody who is uh, some some person who's using, uh, you know, tardigrade uh, features in their uh, in their Trina cluster. So uh, so look out for that as well. Uh, hopefully, we'll probably be closer to summertime, if anything, and uh, we'll we'll bring a lot more to you at that point. Uh, until then, uh, next until next month. Uh, take care, y'all. Music for the show is from the Mega Man Six gameplay album by Shishtaf Swabikowski. Don't forget to give us a star on the Trino repository at github.com forward slash trino db forward slash trino. 
And for more information on future shows and to find show notes, check out trino.io forward slash broadcast.